This is the Greatest Story Ever podcast. There comes a time when all the cosmic tumblers have clicked into place and the universe opens itself up for a few seconds to show you what's possible. With Keith Conrad. You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Welcome to my continuing mission to collect the craziest, most unbelievable life experiences people have ever had. Now, last week, I talked to my friend Mike Stiles about his experience dealing with the coronavirus and his recovery. Mike had a lot of great insight to share, and you should definitely give it a listen if you haven't already. Go ahead. I'll wait. One other person who might fit the bill when it comes to crazy, unbelievable life experiences is a man named Chris Woodhead from England. Now, this story came from the BBC. Chris has found his own unique way to cope with the coronavirus epidemic. He's giving himself a new tattoo for every single day of the lockdown. Chris has been regularly getting tattoos since he was 18. That's about 15 years or so. And he had around 1,000 designs on his body before the lockdown even began. So now he's added 40 more. And basically, he's starting to run out of space. Each and every day, he takes a few minutes, comes up with a design, and then subsequently inks himself. For his 12th lockdown tattoo, uh, that was uh, about three weeks ago, he added a leaping tiger to his body in tribute to Joe Exotic since he and his wife had just watched Tiger King, you know, like just about everybody else on the planet. A week later, he was inspired by the birth of a niece to tattoo the logo of Japanese mayonnaise manufacturer Kewpie, which is a cute wide-eyed baby. Makes sense. One person who definitely has an interesting story to tell is Carl Johnson. You can call him KJ if you want. These days, he's the director for the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, but I wanted to talk to him about the time back when he was a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, and he flew some very unique and interesting passengers on his helicopter. KJ, thanks so much for joining me and sharing your story. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So you spent uh, 20, 20 years in the, uh, in the Marine Corps. So how did you actually, like, how do you get from, from uh, you know, starting off in the, in the Marine Corps to suddenly flying, uh, flying presidents around? <laughs> well, um, a little funny thing happened to me on the way to college, I guess I could say. Um, my, my dad was a career Marine. And as with many fathers and sons, oftentimes there's a little bit of I would say friction, but that would be actually overstating it in our case because we're both pretty uh, relaxed and chill guys. But, you know, we weren't always on the same page. And um, I didn't grow up a military brat. He he retired when I was real little, but I grew up with that influence. And I just figured that I was going to do anything but that. <laughs> so when I finally went in the Marine Corps, I had a couple of friends, especially one of my best friends. Said, Dude, you're the last guy I expected to go in because you're like, you're not anti-military, but unmilitary, if you will. Um, but uh, they offered me an air contract, and who doesn't want to fly? And that was like the one thing I did want to do. So um, very quickly, I uh, compromised on all my values and uh, never looked back. And I, I, I loved it. I, I wasn't anti-military. I, I just uh, thought I would do something else. You're, you're, just, you're just rebelling a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That was my uh, my short-term rebellion. And then uh, back in the background, my dad just kind of nodded. And, yeah, I told you so. But um, <laughs> I went down to Pensacola where uh where naval aviation does all of their flight schooling that's where the coast guard and the navy and the marine corps and a lot of uh, international uh services send their students because uh, it's not just aviation but you're trying to develop uh skills for landing in, in a naval environment 
Um, but fast forward, I end up flying um, the Sea Knight, which is a tandem rotor helicopter and was the workhorse in the Marine Corps for 40 plus years. I mean, it was used in Vietnam. And so I like to joke with my father that he probably flew on some of the very same airframes uh, that I was flying. Um, so I always wanted to go back and kind of look at the bureau numbers and see if I actually flew when he was in. But um, yeah, it's a, it's amazing how long those things uh, hang around because like I, I was looking at a uh, it was an article a couple of years ago talking about the B fifty twos and yeah. uh, the, the 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 writer was saying now let me explain to you how old the B fifty two fleet is. There's actually a B fifty two flying right now, and he gave the tail number, and he says. That was flown by uh, a Brigadier General Jimmy Stewart when he was uh, doing an observation <laughs> mission in Vietnam. The Jimmy Stewart. Like the that Jimmy one. Stewart. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. One, it's amazing. <laughs> we got a Hollywood star up in there. But uh, yeah, I, you know, there's a lot of C-130s that are flying that are really old. The A-10, um, the Air Force flies has, has been a workhorse. So yeah, there's there's a lot of them out there. Uh, you just got to keep them in good shape. But so, you know, fast forward, I get my wings and I go into the, into, we call it the fleet, the operating forces. And, um, I did basically three major fleet tours in, uh, in my 20 years. And each one was three to four years. One was a little bit longer, two of them in Okinawa, Japan that were four deployed, uh, with my family. And then one off the East coast that I did during uh, the nine 11 period. And it was in my, um, third and final tour in Okinawa where that seemed to be uh, it was a busy time because I did three humanitarian missions out there. Even while folks were churning in and out of uh, Iraq at the time, um, we mm-hmm. kept getting redirected to different uh, missions uh, because we did uh, two in the Philippines and the one in Indonesia and Thailand for the tsunami. And it was um, in that first, pretty much that first quarter, first four months of 2005 that we were in um, in Banda Aceh primarily doing relief operations. There were others tending up to Phuket, uh, Thailand, and uh, President uh, Bush uh, Sr. and uh, Bill Clinton, uh, they both were coming out to do a tour, and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time for those two guys. So, um, essentially... I know, I know I've, I've been in uh, radio stations where, um, you know, presidents have visited for, for interviews, yeah. and... They they basically like the the secret service is there for like you know a couple weeks ahead of time yeah uh, checking out to see you know everybody doing their job so they know who's supposed to be there and who isn't supposed to be there and they do background checks on people and things like that yep. so is it like that in the military or or is it a little bit uh, different yeah it is so I've got a good friend of mine who's actually on the secret service detail right now and he's actually one of the longest tenured guys on the presidential detail in secret service history. We went to high school and college together, and he's guarded everybody since, um, well, President Clinton. Because I remember back when they had the Democratic National Convention here in Chicago at the at the new United Center. I'd never been there. I'd been to a lot of games in the old Chicago Stadium because I was a rabid Bulls fan. Um, and he asked, hey, have you ever been? And so I was walking through this fairly new, pristine stadium behind the scenes because he was showing me because they were doing exactly that. Um, there wasn't a ton of that because when you're in an operational environment, it's kind of hard to nail down. Um, because you know they'll scope out routes and all that kind of stuff, but in this case, these guys were former presidents, so they don't have the same level of attention and same detail. So, um, yeah, they do have guards, and we did. Uh, I actually got a nice little Secret Service certificate from them of appreciation when it was all over. But their uh, level of security is dialed much, much uh, lower 
than the regular one. But um, yeah, they're around. They protect them. They uh, they go a little bit ahead of them, making sure they're not walking into something. But uh, you know, you know what was neat about it was seeing these two guys that were from the two ends of the political spectrum. You know, by all accounts, should have been sort of political mortal enemies. You know, uh, President Clinton. You know, unseated President Bush. But mm-hmm. they really got along really well, and uh, it was just neat to see them team up. With us. But so you get these two guys that aren't running for office, and at one point, it was before I did my mission with them, I was out on a, on a small ship where we were based and doing some planning, and one, of, one helicopter flew them in and dropped them off, and it was, I mean, it was Thailand. It was hot, really, really um, humid. And the, the the heat and the humidity saps it out of you. Uh, you know, it's really um, just kind of life sucking. And they got off the I, I lived in Alabama, so I know all about yeah, that. Yeah, so exactly. The same as Alabama, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's sort of like, you know, I lived uh, the part of Pensacola, we call it Florabama. Um, so I know oh, exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Um, so the whole point of that stop, though, was to give them a quick break because, you know, President Bush was already, you know, up in his years at that point. And President Clinton had come off some illness. He looked um, really gaunt. He was quite skinny, uh, almost you know skin and bones, and you could just kind of see sort of a little bit of sunkenness in his eye. His yeah. eye pockets. I, I want to say that that would have been about the time he had had the uh, heart attack. So that might have that might have been it. Might have been. You know, you could just tell that he wasn't up to up to speed physically either. Um. So the idea was to get him off the helicopter, run him into some air conditioning, so they can kind of get you know their their breath and pump him full of water. But as soon as they got off the helicopter, they were walking down the ramp and then they, it's almost like they did a stage dive to the left. And because there were a bunch of Marines and sailors there and they just spent 90% of their time out there in the heat and humidity, shaking hands and talking with the sailors and Marines. And I, and I, I remember kind of getting almost a little choked up thinking, wow, these guys, there's no benefit. There's no cameras. There's no news. They're out here because they actually do love and appreciate these guys. And they could have just Mm -hmm. swooped down in there. And I've heard stories about movie stars and other politicians that are out in some of these environments and they're very narcissistic and keep to themselves and treat people like, uh, like servants, but these guys did not. And, and I know depending on whatever side of the political spectrum you, you land on, that may not be real popular to hear that about Bush or Clinton, but it, it's true. I saw it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, did, did that change your, your view of, uh, of politics? Cause I, you know, not, not necessarily, thinking of you as as conservative or or liberal but especially like i would say since that election where where bush you know was defeated by by clinton you know everybody seems so furious about about politics all the time yeah. that um, you know it, it almost seems like when you when you meet them as people you kind of realize oh well you know maybe maybe even if i disagree with this guy he's not quite the ogre that i thought he was um, I would say it didn't change it a ton. I'm, I've always tend to be, tended to be a little bit more uh, moderate and centrist. And I also, um, I hate hyperbole and caricaturation, caric- caricaturizations. Um, mm-hmm. So even if I disagree with you, if I hear someone say something about you, like Keith always, and I'll be, does he always, you know? Yeah. You usually, maybe it's true in your case. I don't know. Keith always, you know, bugs Misty. I don't know. But um, uh, we'll have to ask her about that one. But uh, yeah, it it maybe it's the philosopher in me. But I just said like, hey, man, mean to say what you mean, and let's not overstate it because I feel like, you know, when you overstate and exaggerate things, it's a lot easier to stop taking you so seriously. But um, I you know I've I vacillated back and forth politically, but 
Um, no, I'm still skeptical about, about politicians. I still think they're all uh, a little odd. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know just, just the, uh, the the fact that, uh, that that you literally say, you know, I should be leading the uh, the the most powerful country in the world. Just to have that idea in your head, you, you got to be a little uh, a little weird. Yeah, if you want the job, you probably shouldn't be the one in the job. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a really good point. I remember a guy um, years ago saying, "Who's the who's the best person for the role, and why isn't he running?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. So, but all that aside, these uh, guys were great. I had Bush Senior in my in my aircraft. So, what you tend to do with with high value people like that um, is you don't put them on the same aircraft because mm-hmm. if one of them goes down, of course, then it's it's you know an increased tragedy. And we do that up and down the chain of command, not just for, for presidents. So uh, I was the air mission commander. We did two missions with them, and so we split it up. And so for the first mission, I was the air mission commander. Um, the one up in Thailand, uh, we handed it off to our uh, – I was the operations officer. The other kind of main power broker in a squadron is the aircraft maintenance officer. You know, they they fix the aircraft, and, of course, then we fly them and, and plan them out. So between the two of us uh, more senior guys, we split that up uh, because we wanted to give real attention to detail. But when I flew the two of them, uh, uh, and I didn't choose it, this is how they laid it out, but I had President Bush on my aircraft, and then President Clinton was on the other one. Uh, I talked to the air crew on both. They treated them, uh, you know, everybody like like heroes. They both spent time taking pictures. President Bush even climbed up. And it's hard to imagine, but in our aircraft, the cockpit is really, really tight. You almost have to be sort of a gymnast and do some contortions to get in and out. Uh, he got almost all the way in the, in the cockpit with us to thank us personally and shake our hands, which is really, uh, was really neat. So uh, just, just a gracious guy all around. So we just got to fly them around, show them the devastation. And, um, they were able to take that message back to all of the different humanitarian organizations that they were representing and trying to, you know, cultivate support for the area. So, uh, Bush 41, I believe he threw, he flew, uh, Avengers in, uh, in world war two. So he uh, he was probably looking at you at your your cockpit there in the helicopter and going, "Wow, you guys have a lot of room here." He may yeah, he may have been, and then since his aircraft was older, he probably thought, "Wow, check out this new technology," which was Vietnam <laughs> era. Um, yeah. So now he, he or maybe he was checking up on us, making sure we were uh, we were doing what we we're supposed to. But yeah, he he was just super great. I, I didn't know what to expect. I guess I didn't expect him to be a jerk or anything. But you never know with people that are are that famous. Um, and I mean, I've ne- I'd never met a president before. So uh, now I I had you on to talk about about this because uh, you know I I'd heard you at least at least mention the story that that you had done this and uh, but but now I'm kind of curious is that actually the craziest thing that happened to you in in your military career or can you top that? <laughs> um, well, it depends on what you mean by crazy, Keith. Um, there are scary stories. There are fun stories. Um, you know, aviation is, is a blast and there are days in the military where we're flying around and, you know, you look at your co-pilot and say, I can't believe we get paid to do this. And then there are other days where you're just flirting with death constantly and you look at each other and go, they don't pay me enough to do this. Um, one, one of them, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I, I could I could definitely imagine that, especially depending on the, the on the job you're doing on that particular day. Yeah, but you know, to be in this profession, you kind of have to like it, anyways. You you probably want to enjoy the edge a little bit. 
Um, you know, pilots are not known for having tiny egos and nor are they um, known for, you know, well, I'd say we're known for getting bored probably a little too quickly. Um, I'll tell you a fun story first. Um, one that was fun where we could, we didn't think uh, we, we should be getting paid to do something like this. Um, I had just come back from deployment. Uh, I, I was stationed out of North Carolina. We had just done our um, a post 9-11 uh, deployment. Uh, actually, my unit, we were in workups during 9-11. And when 9-11 hit, I was standing in my squadron ready room and we were doing a huge tactical mission and we had aircraft spread out all over the Southeast and everything was grounded. I mean, they grounded military too. The only, um, the only helicopter, only aircraft flying was, uh, at, at one point was the president's helicopter. And ironically, the pilot of that helicopter was the guy who was my commanding officer for when I flew the president's. So small, uh, segue there, but, um, uh, we deployed, right after 9-11 to the Middle East. And I call it the big do-nothing deployment because we kept racing around. We did do um, an evacuation of the consulate in Karachi because they had been bombed, but we hadn't quite uh, gone into, um, uh, now my, my timeline's getting a little fuzzy here. I don't think we had gone into uh, Iraq yet at that point. Yeah, we did. We didn't. That was when I came back. Um, so we come back from that deployment and I have to take my commanding officer up to Northern Virginia, uh, the DC area for a meeting. And so we fly up there, we land, and uh, you, you're old enough to remember that old TV show, Major Dad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, that's a real Marine building. We landed on the lawn of the Major Dad building, so that was a lot of fun. Like, woohoo, here we are. We made it. Um, dropped my boss off, and then I let him know that we we're going to try to run the famous DC route. And the only guys that tend to run the DC route are the Presidential Helicopter Squadron guys, uh, HMX-1, because they're there and they run up there all the time uh, because that's you know an easy way in and out to to uh, the White House and stuff like that. And so I had friends over there. So I parked my helicopter over at the HMX-1 squadron. We did some briefings and got all the protocol to get in and out of there. And we went flying up the Potomac. And when I say flying up the Potomac, I mean, literally, because the rules are you have to be like under 100 feet. And usually flying, you have to be high, especially helicopters. There's lots of noise complaints with helicopters. But because you got Reagan National right there. So you can't, I mean, yeah, yeah so you can't go flying up in the airspace of these big airliners. And so they demand that you fly low. And then as, as you approach Reagan, they ask you, can you maintain, you know, I can't remember, it's like 75 feet and below. And when he said that, I go, oh yeah. And as helicopter pilots, we love flying low uh, because we like to say speed is relative. I mean, you can go Mach 1, Mach 1.2 or something like that, but you're usually up way in the altitude. You know, your altitude is really high. And so, you know, sometimes you don't feel it. You've been on an airliner and you're flying, you know, five, 600 miles an hour, you don't really feel it except for takeoff and landings. But if you're flying low, trees and obstacles are whizzing by you, you get much more of a sense of speed. So mm -hmm. um, that's true for an aircraft and jets can do that too. They can come down low and fly it. So we love to fly low and I get the routing and I get the approval and we start zooming up the Potomac and they tell me to go low and we're just kind of popping over these bridges. And uh, my, my commanding officer is staying in a hotel along the river. And <laughs> my goal is to, you know, it's almost like that Top Gun. Hey, permission to flip for a flyby, you know, uh, negative ghost rider, the pattern's full. Well, baloney. We, I, I'm hoping I catch him this day. And the whole goal is, uh, and this wasn't just for, you know, we're not just wasting assets. We had to fly up and park the helicopters at Andrews overnight. That was part of the plan. And so we could have done it the boring way by flying over, or we could have flown up and around. Lest anyone out there is uh, worried about fraud, waste, and abuse. But I, I end up flying up there and I talked to my commanding officer the next day 
And I said, hey, we made it. Did you see us? And he said, well, you know, the funny thing is around nine o'clock on Thursday, whatever the, the timing was, he goes, I walked over to my window and I'm, he goes, mind you, KJ, I'm on the third floor. And I look down and I see two helicopters just whiz right by me. And uh, once he told me the time, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was us, sir. I was, he's like, oh, I thought that was you. I'm glad you didn't kill yourself kind of thing. That was one <laughs> of the highlight moments where I remember thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. And you can never do this really as a civilian guy. So well, that, that, it's, it's funny, though, that, that he was on the third floor and he was looking down at you. That's, that, that's the best part. Yeah, I envy those, uh, those guys flying those routes. And there probably is a few civilian helicopters going through there. But that's mostly a military uh, corridor. And that's, that's just a blast. So, and, and it was harder to get into at that time because that was post nine 11. And we'd also, you know, you had those, those knuckleheads that were flying airplanes in towards the white house and landing them on the, on the lawn. Yeah. So nowadays, I mean, there's no questions. They will shoot if you don't go in with the right clearance. But so that was the fun one. Um, I would say if you want a a nice scary story, um, this was actually part of that same uh, humanitarian mission we we operated in and out of Singapore a lot, you know, which seems odd because it's not really close to where we were, but it wasn't all that far. And it became a logistics hub. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything was being funneled in and out of Singapore. And uh, at one point we had to go back in through Singapore. And the Singapore airport um, there is notoriously hyper conservative when it comes to safety. And they had come to distrust um, the military the U.S. military, in a sense, distrust might be uh, uh, overstating it, but years before, there were a couple of Marine helicopters that were taxiing in their airport, and they got too close to each other's, and their blades kind of hit each other and shattered, and 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 a, and a piece of blade flung into a taxi director and killed them. Oh wow! So they had, they had good cause to be a little concerned, but they were already hyper. Um, I mean, it's Singapore, you know, you got this is the land of Big Brother. If you're chewing gum and and spit it out, they're going to cane you and stuff like that. Right, so we're yeah. really, really tight and rigid. And, and this actually isn't that long after that, after, no, after no. The, the caning incident. Yeah, no, um, and there are probably lots that we don't hear about. But um, so they're already they already clamped down on everything, and they make it difficult for helicopters to get into the airport because it is um, it's the only major airport they have. I mean, they're they're a city state, and so they got these airliners coming in and out and in and out. And I'm waiting and they just said, okay, we'll, we'll wait for an opening. And I kept looking at them. I can fly under these guys, just like I did at Reagan. Uh, I can fly under to get in. Let me in. They would, because they, but they don't, they don't do, they don't play it that way. So finally I got to the point where I was at minimum fuel. I had to declare minimum fuel because they had me waiting for an hour. You know, imagine being at a red wow. light for an hour, except you're driving in a circle. And I finally said, I'm at min fuel. You need to let me go or I'm just going to have to put it in the water. And they, of course, that makes them angry because they think I'm lying to them. Um, but I don't have three hours of gas at this case. So I get in the airport, I get in, fly, uh, do what I need to do. And I get out of the airport and now we're flying back to the ship. The problem though, is when you're flying somewhere, usually, usually your location doesn't move. When you're flying back to a ship, it moves. No big deal. Usually you have these navigational aids. Um, but what I always do just to play it safe, just because navigational aids break and a navigational aid for those who, um, you know, uh, are un, un um, initiated in this. It's basically a beacon of some sort or a radar equipment that allows your aircraft's equipment to pick up on it. And we just follow, we can follow a needle back to where they are. Well, we were on um, what they would call an air capable ship, but not uh, a ship that was necessarily designed to do full-time air aviation operations, which means they didn't have a radar control, you know, a uh, guy like they do in, in ATC and stuff like that. They had a guy that ran a radar combat 
or a combat radar, which is meant to call, you know, when a bad guy's on a boat coming at you, but they're not trained to give me um, real a- aviation readings. Well, we're flying back. It was, um, the weather was terrible. I mean, I could not see more than about 0.2 or 0.3 miles. And it was just bad. And I had, remember, I was at Min Fuel. Um, I tried to get some gas while we were on the ground, but we didn't have time. They kind of shushed us out of there. And we were hustling back and uh, the navigational aid was broken on the ship. And so what I like to do when I leave a ship is I mark it in my GPS. So I have at least some idea where the ship is at. And so I start flying towards where I think the ship is at. And I've got just enough gas to get to the ship and maybe look for it for two minutes. And then I'm going to be out of gas. And so we're flying back. And usually as you fly back to ship, there's certain protocols in the, in the radio uh, communications. And they're like, okay, uh, they say report to see me, which means I can I have visual on the ship. And usually you can see the ship, you know, normal day, you can see at least five miles out. And you see, you would think the terminology would be a little bit, uh, a little bit more intricate than that. Uh, Yeah. Well, you gotta, you gotta keep it short, you know, and we, uh, that's true. Yeah. yeah, You gotta keep them short and we have all sorts of things like souls on board and, you know, we don't say feet, we'll say angels five and stuff like that. Some of it's also in case you have people listening in and aren't initiated in our, our lingo. Yeah. But, um, so, you know, a 10 miles out report to see me. Okay. We'll do five miles out report to see me. We'll do, we get to three miles and two miles. Now, if you don't see a ship at three miles, you're just not trying. But in this case, you really couldn't. And we got to, hey, you're half a mile from the ship. Report to see me. Because if you don't have a, if they, if you can't report visual, they won't clear you to land because, I mean, you're going to fly into it. And as we get to right about 0.2 miles from the ship, all of a sudden I say, I got to see you. And that means I'm like about right next to the ship. And so I had to whip the thing around uh, on, on a moment's notice, seeing it, whip it around, slap it down on the deck and land because we didn't really have much gas. Now, my co-pilot, Funny enough, his call sign was fetus because he looked like a little kid. And he was almost literally in the fetal position at the time. And um, uh, he just uh, he was a fairly brand new pilot. So this was well out of his comfort zone. And I, I actually loved it because it, you're you never feel more alive than when death is at stake. Um, when I landed, my, one of my uh, one of my captains uh, at that time I was a major came and said, dude, I was or I said, sir, I was scared for you. I'm like, what are you scared for? You were in the tower. Um, he said, you couldn't see the ship. Uh, you guys, all of a sudden we saw clouds and then you came bursting out of it. So to me, that was uh, one of the more fun times, but it also could have gone terribly wrong. Well, at least it didn't. That That's the <laughs> important thing. Yeah. yeah anyhow, uh, I, I tell these stories to my wife now. If I told her then, uh, I may not have made it 20 years. <laughs> that's true. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, for joining me and, uh, and sharing a couple stories, KJ. Oh, yeah. Hey, all you got to do is ask a Marine to tell a few war stories and it's um, you just got to shut us up at that point. <laughs> thanks so much. All right. Thanks. For, thanks for having me. If you think you can top that story, shoot me an email at greatest story ever podcast at gmail.com, or you can just find me on Twitter at Keith R Conrad. Be sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, iHeart, Podchaser, or wherever you procure your podcasts. It helps new people find this here cavalcade of unbelievable stories. Next week's unbelievable story comes from entrepreneur, TV analyst, and podcaster Carol Roth. She'll tell me about the time she ended up turning what she thought was just an opportunity for a free vacation into a career. Cabotron.